Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 57, The Battle of Busaco. We have another battle, so we have another episode of the great Marcus Cribb joining us. Say hello, Marcus. Hello again, everyone, and uh, thanks for having me back for another Peninsula War battle. Yeah, another installment. Uh, this is September 27th, so it must be the anniversary of which battle? It's the Battle of Busaco in Portugal, and I already have to apologize for any Portuguese pronunciation that I might be butchering here. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I've, there's a few different ways to spell it as well, whether it's a double S or uh, an inflected C, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Busaco, or at least that's the best my Anglo-Saxon tongue can do. So apologies to the lovely Sp the Spanish and Portuguese people who will have a much better uh, handle on this. Yeah, no, I'm excited to dive into it because I know you've actually, you've been to this battlefield, correct? Uh, yes, I have, and we'll come into it, I'm sure, but this is just unlike any other battlefield I've been to. It is so different. It's um, breathtaking. There's a pretty garden. There is actually a museum there, but this is dramatic as dramatic gets. Okay. We are fighting on a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before we get into that, I just want to um, make sure everyone knows about Marcus's uh, Twitter handles and his webpage. Our uh, webpage is dukeofwellington.org, and your Twitter page is McCrib History, correct? Yeah. Uh, however you want to say it, or at mcrib History. So for Marcus Crib uh, there. And, you know, Twitter, Twitter does pretty well by me and uh, get a reach out to some really good people, and uh, it gets quite a lot of engagement. Indeed. Indeed. Okay. So everyone, please check that out. Um, so yeah, let's jump into the battle here. Uh, it occurred September 27th, 1810. And just to give some background, you know, the Peninsula War at the beginning was kind of going France's way for Napoleon. You know, Junot um, uh, quickly captured Portugal. The royals of Portugal fled to South America. But then Wellington, the future Duke of Wellington, showed up and kicked Junot out, uh, returned them home to the Convention of Sintra. Um, but then Napoleon himself got involved and invaded Spain, and they chased Sir John Moore out through Corona in Spain. And then what happens from there? Can you kind of fill us in? Yeah, so that's where we uh, get to my favorite part of Wellesley coming back uh, and kind of having to assess the situation against uh, Ney and Soult. And uh, he attacks up into Porto, liberates Portugal at the Second Battle of Porto, 12th of May, 1809. And then takes a bit of a risk going back into uh, Spain and fights and closely wins the Battle of Talavera, which uh, the British government ennoble him to Viscount, later Duke of Wellington. So from that point onwards, he's Lord Wellington. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that takes us for most of the, the summer of 1809. And then we start to push into 1810. And he's got to solidify Portugal. Remember, his main mission he's given is to liberate and support Portugal. But he knows that going on, that Spain is always going to be the battle. So he's got, it's quite important to think that he's always got to make sure that Lisbon's safe. And also he's got to think about the wider campaign. And those two things really kind of come to uh, fruition at Busaco. Okay. So Napoleon's probably at his wit's end. So he has... He has a few options of who to place in command. Uh, you know, Davout is there, Marmont is available, but he chooses Marshal Massena. Do you know why he, he sent Massena? Go on. Why did he choose Massena? You're 
as of out of all of his many marshals. Well, I I mean, the guy was naturally talented beyond re- I mean, amazingly talented as a military strategist, but he was also a magnificent looter in the in the you know cloth of Sult and some of the others. Yeah. Um, but you know, he says, Masana, you know, your reputation alone will be enough to finish the business and get the British out of the peninsula. So he he's shows a busy career by this point, hasn't he? Yeah, he, I mean, he's very he's experienced a, commander. Very experienced commander. They just defeated the Austrians again at Vagram, um, but he's old. He's fifty-two years old. But as uh, General Foix says, he looks sixty. He lost an eye due to a hunting accident with Napoleon. This is and, just after his accident, actually, isn't it? So right. he's, he's lost an eye because Napoleon shot him in the face. Yeah, well, or Berthier. Who, yeah, Bert, Berthier took the blame but everyone thinks it was napoleon who shot him in the eye um but he's sent to control this army of portugal and he has two men serving under him uh marshal ney and uh general rainier who probably think they could do just as good a job as Massena, don't you think yeah and i think there's quite a few points that ney does wonder why he's second in command on this uh campaign but Massena, you know he he carries on. He has quite a quite an impressive uh, time in the Peninsula War, but uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting seeing Ney as a second in command to another marshal. Right, right, and um, you know, like I said, uh, he does have good support staff under him. Masena does. He has an army of about sixty thousand, and things start off well, right? They they quickly win the the battle, the siege of Ciudad Rodrigo, the Battle of Coa is, uh, you know. It, they say French victory, but really it was kind of a stalemate, but it wasn't a loss for the, the French. And then the siege of Almeida ended quickly with that massive explosion inside. So it seems like things started off well for Messina. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things there, isn't there? So Coa is an interesting one where uh, Black Bob Crawford's light division are kind of caught in the surprise and managed to fight a very successful rear guard, a bit of a counterattack. And it's also one of my other favorite battle probably my favorite small battlefield um, but it's very different to uh, Busako it's actually Coa's beautiful and uh, Busako's dramatic Almeida this this famous kind of lucky or unlucky shot that blows up the magazine and throws tons of gunpowder up and into the air and secondary explosions so there's there's some elements of luck there's some uh, we're on the border and then as we head towards you know, Bisaka itself, the, we, we know that both sides know that there's a major um, pitch battle coming by this point. It's become a bit inevitable. So we'd have Rodrigo, Almeida fallen, as you said. So Wellington starts to do some things. He starts to mine some bridges and dig up some bits of roads and blockading them to, to funnel the troops up towards uh, Bisaka Ridge itself. And the French troops. Yeah. 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 So... I mean, let's talk about the topography real quick, because I still don't understand why Massena attacked at this point, other than the fact that they're pretty much undefeated. You know, Ciudad Rodrigo, Coa and Almeida were going so well. But let's talk about the topography, because I don't understand why you would assault a ridge that high and that long. No, I mean, so um, Busaco Ridge is about 10 miles, 16 kilometers uh, long. I think it's over 500 meters, like 1,800 feet high. It's, mm-hmm. it's tall, and it's not a gentle climb in any way, shape, or form. It is steep. It is like a knife ridge back at certain points. 
and I can't remember if I said this in the last recording or not, but um, <laughs> my, you know, my little uh, Portuguese hire car going up there was in first gear, really struggling. And I was like changing gear around the corners, like a scene out of the Italian job original. Right. Okay, right. Um, yeah. yeah. And uh, it really was steep to drive up there. Nowadays it's quite heavily wooded. Um mm. it it wasn't wooded then, it was quite exposed, but it's it's a hell of a position. You know, you can see for miles and miles. So Wellington's troops would have had fairly good, really good fair warning about anyone coming, you know, probably right. like a good like day of March, you know, troops marching create a lot of dust with wagons and boots and things getting thrown up as well as, you know, it's not quiet horses, right. um, the, the accoutrements onto horses jangle and people laugh, swear music, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then just, just think, marching up a 500 meter plus ridge is right. very hard going never mind the fact that this is going to be in a battle so there's going to be incoming fire on you right and, and it's not like it's your artillery or cavalry can support you it's all on the infantry this is massively going to be on the infantry i think there's points of it that the french artillery could actually not reach the peak because it's actually too steep and mm -hmm. um, you know if they can go onto the ridge at the bottom but actually, they need to get onto the base of that ridge to, in order to elevate their guns. Right. So that that just yeah, it is a good you know forty kind of degree angle at a certain point. Uh, stunning, uh, absolutely stunning. Uh, and part of that is because there was a a convent, uh, a religious order of monks, uh, there in the centre of the ridge, pretty much. And that's uh, now Busaco Palace, which is now a hotel. And I was reading uh, Charles Oman and uh, Marbeau's notes, and one of the other features of Busaco is uh, once you get up to the ridge, there's this flat top area where you can move troops around to any hot spots that pop up. So Napoleon, let's imagine a nine mile long line of British redcoats and Portuguese troops of the 50,000 troops that Wellington had, half of them were Portuguese. But just imagine this long line, but also imagine there's a flat top at the top where they could move troops any troubled areas correct yeah it's, it's got a nice plateau to it mm -hmm. so it's it's really in weight of the anglo-british uh anglo-portuguese sorry um forces the british and portuguese yep because they've they've had that climb admittedly they've had to do it as well uh, mm -hmm. but now they're rested in nice surroundings and they can move up and down roughly north and south um position in relative ease because it's flat up there anyone coming towards them they can move around and get to them far quicker right and let's talk about uh wellington's favorite thing uh to use in battle which is reverse slope so the french probably have sixty thousand troops are going against fifty thousand troops but they can't see them all right they can't tell how many are up there yeah they're gonna have no idea uh at this position uh, it's not even the the full-blown reverse slope that we talk about for many battles um, especially waterloo mm -hmm. um, because wellington doesn't need to hide his troops on the full reverse slope because by being at the just on the plateau um they're going to be invisible to you know troops on the ground at eye height right. so he's kind of doing a reverse slope by just being on the ridge um you know the the French guns, apart from some howitzers and some bits, can't get to him uh, initially, mm -hmm. and he can move troops. And the whole point of that the reverse slope is it's kind of shunned by, um, especially, funny enough, people who seem to love Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, 
because it's thought as being a bit derivative it's it's easy well actually it's quite bold because you're not being able to bring your guns and your, your troops to bear at the beginning but it allows that degree of movement you can move people around without them hopefully being in the main line of fire and yeah. uh, not getting all the casualties and here he's got some untested troops he's got some portuguese um which is really important that the the british and the portuguese are fighting alongside each other as both regular and militia portuguese actually Right. I'm glad you brought that up. This is the first real test for the reconstituted Portuguese army. I know they've been working with uh, Marshal Beresford, correct, to get kind of retrained and re, re, re ready, I guess, re prepared for battle. Yeah. Um, Beresford, who's uh, one of Wellington's uh, close generals, he gets put as Marshal of the Portuguese forces after, um, or basically, the, the Portuguese forces, the, most of the army has had been forced, conscripted into the French army. They form the Portuguese Legion mm-hmm. and they get marched out. Now, remember, the, the first invasion of Portugal kind of goes off without a shot. So Napoleon orders that he'll take the Portuguese army. A few desert before it starts. So they get formed into a legion of mixed of infantry, cavalry and artillery. And they start to march back to France because they don't want to deploy them in Portugal because... Right that's just senseless um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm you know i've got a soft spot for the portuguese they're very today they're very friendly people uh, sure. but back then they they fought very hard for the liberation of their country right. and i'm always i'm a bit proud always to say that half of those troops deserted before they got to the pyrenees right and they pretty much all had headed back to portugal and uh and most of them then rejoined Beresford's force of Portuguese army. Uh, a few joined as uh, partisans, as guerrillas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine a few went home. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, but then I always feel very sorry for the Portuguese who stayed in the the legion, and because they ended up as far as Moscow. Right, right. And that's a long way from home. That is, that is. But um, getting back to our, our battle here at Busaco, the strategy. Uh, I think Masena again kind of screwed up here, not to play Monday morning quarterback, but. It was it was two a two pronged attack, uh, one by Rainier's second corps, and then I think like an hour later it was the sixth corps of Ney, Marshal Ney. Um, do you kind of want to talk about how that started? Yeah, so they go in very early. Um, they've they've marched, they've been spotted, so um, the troops on top of the ridge know they're coming, uh, and they go up against British and you know quite conveniently for our um, background here, you know British and Portuguese troops attack them uh, back in line. Mm-hmm. And uh, the French come on in their classic column. So it's column versus line uh, here. And then they try to uh, deploy out as the Allies bring in huge amount of musketry. So it's two ranks deep. Uh, And this is where they bring in more troops uh, to the side. Uh, There's more British troops. So you've got quite a lot of Portuguese holding the centre, two battalions of Portuguese and British troops coming on the side of those um, those columns now the columns work because they allow the f- famous french ilan the spirits marching up and pushing them on right and the 88th are one of the battalions that come in on the side and those are the uh connaught rangers who actually include a lot of gallic speaking uh irishmen uh, who speak you know english badly or as a second language some of them right and they charge in uh bayonets into the it's very rocky coming up and there's a fantastic account by uh ensign william grattan uh, where he talks about charging through the smoke of the musket sword drawn and coming face to face with the french and it just if any this is always one of the ones if i could say if you can get hold of grattan 
I think it's on like Kindle for like one pound sterling or you know, a dollar. Right. It's, it's it's quite a good book if you can get hold of it. I think it's only I think there's like the modern print of it, so only like four or five pounds. Okay. Um, well, well worth it, and it reads better than a Bernard Cornwell Sharp. I'm afraid to say it does. <laughs> At this certain point, he really does talk about the hand-to-hand fighting. It's from a guy who's there. He actually talks about he thinks that some of the troops in front of him might be from the Irish Legion, and these are Irishmen who are fighting for the French. Yeah, mostly uh, emigres, uh, second um, second generation, but some of them actually like left Ireland to fight against Britain. Yeah. Turns out he didn't, because he, he does admit he didn't see any of the Irish Legion there. And there's work being done and proven that the, the Irish Legion was at a different point of the battlefield. But it's that kind of closeness of almost Irish on Irish uh, here makes that that's quite interesting. And, and Wellington uh, witnesses uh, this charge go in with bayonets into the column. I think you've got the quote there, have you? Yeah, I do. Quote, I have never witnessed a more gallant charge, end quote. And that just speaks to me like, you know, Wellington had seen a lot by that point in India and, you know, a, a lot of places. And he never seen a better one than that. Yeah, I think if he, that's his kind of classic understatement of Wellington. Just I, I've never witnessed a more gallant charge. Thank you. Right. Carry on. You know, yeah. he's not he's not cheering. That's not his style when handing out loads of honours. So, yeah, that, that was that, the best that, I've seen. Well done. That's it. Yeah. And, and this is an onslaught. But the, the French do gain a foothold. Uh General Foix, he, he gets in there and they're holding a, a spot there. But then um, it's just a, a, a tremendous amount of firepower being unleashed on Rainier's uh, corps. And I was reading Charles Amon and it said, usually in engagements in the peninsula, the French suffered one officer casualty for every 22 men. But in this battle, it was one officer casualty for every 15 men. Because I think the officers were at the front trying to get their men up the hill and into the battle. Yeah, and they must be, you know, trying to. I'm trying to think of those like long leg steps that you need to get up a long slope, and they must have been doing that, you know, sword drawn, yep, you know, cheering them on. Come on, after me, my, you know, mes enfants. Um, and they, yeah, they're going to get wounded, and uh, and General Foix gets wounded in this as well. Yeah, uh, I know you just just finished your podcast on him. I was listening yeah. to. Uh, yep. it, it really another really interesting character, and he he's there leading his troops. Indeed, indeed, and then. For whatever reason, uh, Ney's attack was supposed to be an hour later once he saw that Rainier's troops were at the top of the hill. So maybe they assumed that the British would funnel troops over to Rainier's attack and then Ney's attack would be left unguarded. But that wasn't the case, was it? No, I think he's made this assumption. Uh, he's going on. And then as they reach the top of the crest, uh, he comes against the British light infantry Uh the 43rd and the 52nd Oxfordshire Light Infantry. Correct. Uh, and these are part of Black Bob Crawford's uh, famous light division. Uh, so these are your, your men who are very good at skirmishing. Uh, actually here, they're kind of in line and they kind of stand up out of this rocky crest, fire in volleys and then charge, follow it in with bayonets. And you can imagine here, actually, it's going to be quite instantaneous. You've, you've marched all the way up this crest. You might, if you're lucky, have seen... Um, your your comrades fighting but if not you're just going to be going to be in the middle of a column and mm -hmm. all you get is something out of the rock hit up some, some troops crashing volleys it's going to be loud people around you dying and then you just see red coats coming towards you with bayonets and they've got then the impetus of running down a slope towards you as well so right be physically knocked back as well right it must be scary as heck and, and let's say like you said you you're in a column but you actually make it to the crest and then you see my god there's fifty thousand troops up here what are we doing so yeah. 
it, right. it must have been terrifying. And then eventually the French forces are swept off the ridge. Uh, several of their generals are wounded. One is killed, uh, Grain Dorge. Uh, so I know they kind of run back down the hill, and that's kind of kind of where the battle ends up. Yeah, I mean, give them their credit in that they do, you know, they do get onto uh, the ridge, especially the, the Second Corps attack, as we say. Um, I think they rout a unit of Portuguese militia. Yep. Uh, but, I mean, and that in itself, I think, is an incredible feat, uh, just mm -hmm. getting up that ridge under the fire. And, uh, yeah, by this point, when they start to rout, there's, I think there's quite a lot of prisoners uh, captured in this engagement as well, um, and especially some ranking uh, brigade level commanders of the French are kind of captured as they're, you know, trying to rally men around them who are fleeing. It means that they're, you know, more static and the, the allies can get in amongst them and, uh, and capture them. I think it's, yeah, I think it's about 400 captured. Yeah. Um, it's uh, the French suffered 522 dead, 3,600 wounded and about 400 captured the allies only 200 dead thousand wounded and about 51 missing. So, the French suffered about three times what the British and Portuguese suffered. Yes, and just a quick word on missing. Uh, sometimes that is dead. We don't know where they've gone. Uh, sometimes it's administrative error, but more often than not, it's somebody who's taken their chance to desert in the confusion. Uh, okay. it, 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 could be, it could be one of a few things, uh, but that's often what missing uh, comes into. But yeah. yeah, you can see there's quite a discrepancy in the dead and wounded uh, levels. And, uh, you know, British aren't recording uh, any casualties and my one of my standout ones from this i remember from uh, oman is he lists both the portuguese and the british having suffered exactly the same number of casualties yeah um, i think it was so it was yeah it was 626 so that shows you know just how much here the beresford's portuguese and wellington's british are fighting alongside each other in this um in this battle and it it's in a really old alliance, the, uh, the Anglo-Portuguese alliance. It goes back to early medieval era and still goes on today, uh, despite you know recent political situations. So I think it's a really solidifying point where these men have stood up. And there's a few accounts afterwards as well of the British saying, yeah, the, the Portuguese weren't bad, which is a strong British praise to say. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> well, on the other side, you, you mentioned this before. I'd like to point out, I mean, the chances of success were slim. How, how heavy are the packs and the muskets that the French troops are carrying up this giant hill? Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to depend man on man. Um, mm -hmm. But I will say it's roughly uh, 40 to 50 kilos, mm -hmm. um, depending on if they've still got their uh, spares of clothes and how much food, and especially for the French, um, how much loot they're carrying. So, and people would carry you know, additional things because they wanted to or additional things because they've stolen it. So right. uh, okay. it will vary. But actually, if you take off like modern body armor and helmets, it's quite equatable to what a soldier would carry today in their Bergen, in their backpack. You carry a spare pair of shoes. You carry something to sleep in. You carry some food. You know, you yeah, carry a spare shirt. Yeah. So while people are shooting at you. Yeah. And, and they don't, the soldiers of the time very rarely tend to drop those bags um, because you don't have the logistics chain to support you. So um, they tend to fight with their packs on. Okay. Well, uh, Messina obviously realizes this is a bad idea and he kind of reorganizes his troops at the base of the hill, but he kind of skillfully outflanks Wellington the next day, correct? Yeah, and I think actually this is one that uh, Ney leads on. 
-hmm. and says, let's go round. So uh, Wellington finishes the day still on the the ridge. There's a little bit of rear guard skirmishing at the the end of the day and the next day. Um, But Massina, I do believe it was led by Ney, kind of going around the north. Yeah, I think they found some Portuguese uh, uh, citizen or resident told them about a a path around it and and Ney and his troops found it and kind of went from there and, and took Coimbra shortly after. Yeah, uh, and they keep they keep going. And um, actually, you mentioned Coimbra, which is a beautiful university uh, city, mm-hmm. uh, one of the oldest libraries in Europe. And um, yeah, they know they they drop all their their sick and wounded in Coimbra, and then actually, as they march on, the the Portuguese get amongst them. I think there's some pretty horrible scenes actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they they march on, and it's it, Wellington knows that they're marching round. He sees this. He's still on the ridge, so he can. W- witness it happen and he's not phased by it and he he picks his army up in good order this isn't like a retreat to corona right. you know they they turn around march in discipline line back to lisbon and he's um he's pretty non non-phased by this isn't yeah. he yeah and he's got a surprise waiting for Massena, doesn't he yeah he does he's got the lines of torres vedras yeah. uh which are three uh principal lines uh primary secondary and then there's a outer works around lisbon of uh, about 150 defensive uh, positions that it, wherever possible they interlock they use natural ravines and features they actually have chain links across uh the mighty rivers and even some royal navy gunboats on the rivers so it's impassable because lisbon's actually on a bit of a a bit of a peninsula of itself mm-hmm. and it funnels the Massina's troops down and though some uh, attempts are made against the, the the first line the primary line they're never breached yeah and they are very strong defensive positions it was wellington's idea uh, and he's handed it over to uh rural engineers uh, colonel fletcher and uh, richard fletcher with his uh, Portuguese uh, laborers who design and build and each what I find really strange but quite impressive is every single one of these forts is unique they don't take a design and copy and paste it across they build a different fort at every position right right and um you know I, I think Wellington reached the lines of Torres Vedras by October 10th so basically two weeks after the battle and I know Messina has received a lot of flack for not doing more to now, now, he didn't know about the lines of Torres Vedras, nor did Napoleon. So, you know, he was kind of probably licking his wounds at Coimbra. Um, he couldn't retreat because he's Massena. He's not going to retreat anywhere. And he probably didn't want to attack the British again after receiving that, that bloody nose. So I, I really can't fault him for kind of reorganizing Coimbra. But I, I think just leaving your wounded there while you went on to the lines was probably a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was interested in what your assessment would be. His his big problem that he's now going to have is by being outside in what's now the autumn of Torres Vedras, is Wellington and the uh, local troops have brought as much food inside uh, the lines as possible mm. to survive the winter. So it's basically scorched earth tactics. Right. Uh, not all of the Portuguese abandon their homes, but also he takes a lot of the Portuguese inside. Um and worthy of note, because this doesn't get mentioned all the time, is actually the the food primarily goes to the fighting men. So there is actually a high element of starvation within the Portuguese that winter. Right. But that's nothing like Massena's men suffer. Uh, oh, yeah. They're going out. They're trying to find uh, fodder for the horses and food for themselves. They have clashes with guerrillas. This is 
the height of if a man goes off by himself to find his own food um, and he comes across a local, the local will try to kill him. You yeah. Know, better than not. And, and it's, it's very nasty. Yeah. I mean, by the time he finally leaves, uh, he retreats into Spain in 1811. He's lost 25,000 men from sickness or starvation. So, yeah, it's pretty bad out there. Yeah. That's 25,000 out of what 60,000 so there's a really really bad odds and it's mostly through exposure in the winter because it does you know can snow in in portugal in the winter yeah and it gets cold and exposure um and some of the houses and barns are being torn down burned down by the portuguese and the british to give them that exposure to the french uh but also there's so little food and they're about as far as they can be from from their own supply lines because they're right in the west of the country so it's um it kind of highlights the brutality of the warfare. Um, but then the lines of Taurus Fair, just the other side of it, is they are pretty much an engineering masterpiece. They've got interlocking arcs. Uh, they've got uh, observation positions. And they've actually got a semaphore-type system uh, as well that uses balls and flags. It's like big, big inflatable balls that goes up and down uh, so they can send quite complicated messages. Uh, right. So it's a really, really high-tech um area as well if you get if anyone gets a chance to visit them all the different like say all the forts are different uh so they make for a really interesting uh visit yeah for sure well let's talk about the legacy of busaco uh real quick i'll speak to the portuguese part i think it was a major morale boost for them um gosh when napoleon invaded in 1807 they barely put up a fight which you know um basically scared the the royal family off to south america but this battle was the first time they kind of were really organized. They had the British supporting them and they fought toe to toe with, you know, the best troops in Europe, the French and, and performed quite well. Don't you think? Yeah, I think uh, we should never underestimate what the uh, Portuguese contribution is to the Peninsular War. So um, here is their fir- it's not their first time fighting. Um, we do see them in uh, from about the 1809 campaign. Right. Uh, but it's their first time in a pitched battle side to side with the British before it's been quite a lot of flanking maneuvers. Uh, always like to shout out to the little ones that we don't talk about very often. So the Loyalist Italian Legion, um, who are like an irregular force, have been out in the mountains for the whole time. Uh, with, right. uh, men like John Trant and Robert Wilson, British officers doing pretty strange things in the in the <laughs> um, in the hills, holding up the French. Right. Um, and they, you know, very much like kind of ranger tactics. Very impressive. Yeah. Um, but the this is them, you know, regular line infantry fighting alongside British regular line infantry against French regular line infantry. So there's a lot of comparisons can be made. And there's one unit of Portuguese militia that break when the two corps uh, get onto the ridge. But then they are the militia. You know, they're not as well trained. They're right. there for the duration of the war uh, or, or short term and campaign. But the Portuguese line troops do very well. And um, like I say, that kind of begrudging respect from their British counterparts actually does, again, a bit like Wellington's understatement, actually means high praise. And that that then means that Wellington slowly gets more and more faith in the Portuguese, which means that his his numbers are higher. You know, he's actually counted them as a, as a full unit. Yeah. And, um, and also then kudos to Beresford for, for training up uh, an army largely from scratch. Yeah. Uh, on the British side, I only saw one criticism, but it was why Wellington didn't march down the hill and attack Massena the next day. And I think it can be said when Massena, uh, Wellington was asked, you know, which marshal was the best, it was Massena. You know, that was who he didn't ch- take chances against. And he didn't need to. He could retire, like you said, leisurely 
uh, not in a rush manner behind the lines of Taurus Phaedrus, regroup and refit and be ready to fight again. So I think, I don't think that that criticism of Wellington is valid. Yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe it could be Wellington. He never gets that complete victory, does he? But um, mm-hmm. and we see that time and time again. But yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't need to. He's actually on the back foot in this battle. Um, mm-hmm. As we said earlier, he's he's lost uh, Sudan Rodrigo and Almeida and and the combat on the Koa. So he's on the back foot. And what he's looking to do then is stem the French invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then move back and he knows you know it's september autumn and winter are coming i've got the lines of torres vedras they're finished uh and we can test them out and he has relatively faith then in those lines and let's face it it's quite mountainous terrain there as well so we can if worst case scenarios he can fight a similar battle again it'll be more risky because it's closer to the capital um but he can fight that again but there are actually troops in the capital um British and Portuguese there to bolster his numbers. So he can play, you know, he can kind of do that risk benefit analysis that uh, officers need to do as well as, you know, in a modern business place that you kind of weigh up your risks and he goes, okay, yeah, we can, we can move back in order. Whereas if he goes on the attack and Messina manages to do a counterattack, actually, then he's off his mountainous ridge. You know, Bissaka was a good place. Hence he stayed there the next night as well. Right. So, um, it's an interesting one, but uh, the thing my takeaway from Busaco is yes, as well as counter attacks and bayonet charges and Portuguese bravery and fantastic engineering in the background, this dramatic scenery. If you get a chance to visit somewhere as as far as different battlefields go, Busaco is about the one that you think it's very different to most Napoleonic battles that happen to be big open flat fields. Right, this is not right. that. Right, yeah. I'd- Sounds like unlike any other battlefield you'll find. And uh, yeah, it sounds really intriguing. But um, yeah, no, I appreciate that overview, Marcus. That was very impressive. And uh, yeah, I think it's a battle that, I mean, there's bigger battles in the Peninsula War, obviously, uh, Fuentes de Enoro and, and um, Salamanca. But I think this one's very intriguing, don't you? Yeah, I really like Busaco uh, because it is that test bed of the Anglo-Portuguese uh, troops and alliance um, uh, and having Massena and Ney. Uh, against Wellington here, right. uh, but also um, the the stunning scenery. It's got a it's got a cute little museum. Um, do go and visit as well if you get that chance. Um, you you need to get a hire car uh, up there, <laughs> probably a bigger one than the one I hired. Um, but it's it's stunning. Or you know, I'll put some photos up. I'm sure for this uh, for when the podcast goes out. But uh, it's it's stunning. It's dramatic. Uh, I had a lot of fun running up and down the slopes and tying myself out. <laughs> and um yeah it, it's a really good one from mm. my only one always is i kind of wonder why massina didn't bypass the whole situation I, I probably know the answer he doesn't want to be attacked in the rear but i wouldn't want to be stood at the bottom of busaco ridge and go i'm whether i was an yeah. officer on a horse or a man with a pack it's it's going to be hard going yeah yeah and i thought about that like maybe if you would have tried like a, just a single attack instead of a two-prong like the 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 system that Napoleon used when he invaded Spain, he you basically made a sledgehammer at Tudela and then split that sledgehammer into parts to wrap around the Spanish army. Um, but again, that was more on flat fields. I don't know going uphill what would have worked. So, yeah, you make a good point. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what Massena was thinking either. No, I mean it's very sometimes easy to have the benefit of hindsight and yeah. uh, you know safe living and and guess them, but that's that's part of the fun of it, I guess as well. Yeah. Um, but it's it certainly doesn't seem like the an option that 
had much benefit. I think the odds were stacked against him from the offset. Um, and I think, you know, the French did very well, especially, you know, two core to get onto the, the ridge itself. Yeah, indeed. Um, they did. They did very well for that. Indeed. Well, thank you, my friend. Another good episode as always. And um, yeah, let's um, let's reconvene in October. I'm sure we have more battles coming up. I'm sure they do. And, uh, you know, I always enjoy these um, overview styles. I hope other people do. So let us know what they think and um, what else we can do. Sounds good. Thank you, Marcus. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone.